I'm James Lawrenson, the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. We know in this country that Australia does very well when China is growing quickly. But as I listen to the commentary around China, and particularly its long-run prospects, there's a number of risks that are mentioned. And one of the big ones is China's adverse demographics. Let me give you an example. In a 2014 paper, well-known defence analysts Paul Dibb and John Lee said it is almost certain that unlike ageing advanced economies, China will be the first major economy in history to grow old before it grows rich, or even moderately rich. And this is the implication for them. They said this should cause us to look at more than China's GDP size and growth, which, although impressive, has nevertheless been underpinned by a political economic model that has left the country woefully underprepared for its inevitable ageing. Right? That's a big argument. The argument was essentially that in, in Australia, um, we're overstating China's rise relative to the US because China's demographics are destined to hobble it. So, to discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. Lauren Johnston. She's spent the last three years at the University of Melbourne as a full-time research fellow. She holds a PhD in economics from Peking University. Lauren, welcome to the ACRI podcast. Hello, James. Thanks for the invitation. Lauren, you've got a number of research interests, and I've been following them keenly over the last few years. You've been doing your postdoc. One, of course, is um, you're the economist who's been looking at China-Africa relations probably the longest. Uh, but the other strand of your research is looking at this question of the implications of China's ageing population. Can you kick us off with a quick review of exactly where this phrase about China, that it's going to get old before it gets rich, comes from? And what does it mean exactly? comes from a demographer at Renmin University in the mid-1980s who was looking at the trends in China's population from you know, the 1960s, the dramatic fall in fertility rate, which was then compounded by the one-child policy being introduced from around 1980. And he projected that forward, like what would that do to the structure of China's population over time? against what he could foresee of where the economy would go and how quickly China's per capita income would increase. And, you know, fast-forwarding a few decades, he identified that China would get old, which means a high share of its population is aged over 65. Technically, the definition is 7% over 65. China would get old before it would get rich, and rich meaning enter the high-income group and be a a recognised, you know, industrialised economy. So it, it came from a projection of a Renmin University demographer in the mid-1980s around some quite dramatic forecasts for the economy and the population. Right, and since that prediction or forecast was made, it's been a phrase that everyone's um, repeating, it seems. So, look, the common assumption seems to be that if a country does get old before it gets rich, then it won't get rich. Um, that's the risk. Or, or put differently, a country's only hope of getting rich is to do so before it gets old. Now, this is where I really want to throw to your research, because is that an assumption that's backed up by empirical evidence? Um, well, about... Two or three years ago, two years ago, I was awarded a, a, a small grant by Melbourne University to work with some researchers at Peking University in the National School of Development on this question. And I guess the, the fundamental issue is what what were the, what were the risks that Wu Tanping identified in terms of the economic development risks for China of getting old before rich? Um, first would be that you know the, the 
consequence or shrinking of the, the size of the labor market within the population would introduce wage inflation ahead of China actually having realized you know, high-level technological advantages and having educated its whole population to the level that, or the working population to the level that could compete with frontier economies like America, Germany, and, and, and so on. So that this, this lack of competitiveness, care of wage pressure, um, would, would restrict growth. And then on top of that, you would have this need to provide resources to, to manage the hundreds of millions of old, and that would redirect financing or limited developing country financing away from development and into caring for the old, which obviously was very, very necessary, but would similarly slow down China's growth. And the other big issue was that Wu Tumping looked around and he looked at how, like, what was the demographic structure when economies like Japan and Taiwan and Singapore and Hong Kong, you know, when they had entered the high income group or its equivalent of the, of the day, uh, they had all had demographically young populations. So Wu added all of that together and thought, oh, oh no, like China is mm. really going to struggle to get rich in comparison. And so, indeed, as you noted, since the mid 1980s, there's been this tendency to say, yes, but China's getting old before rich. Yes, but China's getting old before rich. Now, I learned about that phrase when I was an undergraduate studying Chinese economy at Melbourne University. And ever since then, I've, I've had this kind of tendency to say, but is, is, that, is it still the case that countries are, are, are only getting rich when they're young, number one? And secondly, you can extrapolate out from that notion that if there's old before rich, there must be old after rich. And, and I was never quite sure if getting old before rich might itself be actually more challenging in the long run growth kind of spectrum mm. as, as getting old after rich. So these are the questions that kind of fed into this research project that Peking University embarked upon you know, through, through this grant we got from, from Melbourne University. So one of the questions we asked, or the kind of one of the initial questions was, let's just go back or find all the countries that have entered the high income group in the last you know, 20, 30 years, let's say, for which was the period basically data was available. And have a look at their demographic structure. Were they old at the time as empirically defined or were they young? And it actually turned out many of them are now old. So this, this earlier precedent from Japan and Hong Kong and Taiwan is, is perhaps no longer as relevant by, by today as it, as it was back then when we'll have this amazing foresight. And, you know, the reasons for that we didn't explicitly or very directly explore, but they seem to relate to the fact that you know, demographic transition is happening relatively rapidly, you know, which means that, you know, there's been women are having fewer children, they're delaying childbirth, and on top of which, thanks to public health and healthy lifespans in, you know, in healthy elderly years in old age, um, people are living much longer. So countries are entering the population aging group kind of, you know, much more commonly and more and, and more rapidly than previously at the same time as fertility has fallen. So or compounding that very that very trend in fact. Mm. And this means, you know, that that what you find is countries are now tend to enter the high income group when they're already old because that economic growth is being driven as much by the role of women in, in the economy without women in the economy, maybe that transition itself would be slower. But by having women in the economy, the demographic transition speeds up. 
so hence now you have the situation where it seems to be that most countries entering the high income group are actually already old which is quite different to the era when you know china had this fear of getting old before rich the mid 1980s so kind of you know three decades later it was maybe maybe due for an update and a, and a refresh yeah. of how population aging interacts with the economy so i guess that that was one of our one of our kind of key findings was that there seems to be a shift in in that trend of how old countries are when they get rich so to speak okay lauren where the australian china relations institute so we always like to link everything back to that bottom line question what does it mean for australia um, I was wondering if we could take this, this this demographic discussion in that area. So, what's Australia's population aging challenge? We've got one too, apparently, compared with China's. Is one easier to deal with than the other, in your view? So this this is the the fascinating thing about what one can do with Wu's idea. So you know, if if there is old before rich, then there's old after rich, as I said, and then similarly. There's kind of poor and young countries, poor and old countries, rich and old countries, rich and young countries, and Australia falls in the rich and old category. So we have an aging population, and we're a rich economy. Where China falls in the old population, um, but not yet a rich economy. So kind of a poor and old combination. And to be honest, the the, the interaction or that the differences faced by such different demographic economic combinations are really not particularly well studied or understood. Right. So what what we tried to do was kind of, you know, at least draw out some of the onward questions that that might be looked at. For example, you know, we we could at least on the surface surmise that thanks to having got old after rich, which is the case of Australia, that the older population share in Australia are on average probably a lot more wealthy. Than the older population share in China, who spent most of their lifetime quite poor. Sure. And you know they they said the older population share in China don't tend to drive China's consumption. That share the share of population driving China's consumption tends to be the working age population and the younger population share. Right. So you have like an extraordinary array of structural differences、mm. that arise according to the timing of population、mm. in it. In a development process, and how that affects the economy really hasn't been well understood. But if it's better understood, both Australia and China can target their policies right, differently right. according to those different structural implications of of how population aging is affecting the economy. And and just to add one more point in here, you know,、uh, there's been a lot of awareness of population aging, you know, in in Economic circles and demographic circles, but there has been a, a tendency to use the phrase "population aging" or, or "aging population" and "aging economy" as synonyms, as if they're they're entirely the same thing. And one of the things we were looking at, if you're kind of if you're a poor and old economy, or you're a rich and old economy, probably how an aging population. Is actually aging the economy is quite different thanks to those structural differences we pointed out. So this this need to kind of differentiate. Okay, well, there's an aging population in China, in Australia, in Germany, wherever. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that that equivalent old population share is aging the economy or slowing the economy the same way. Right. 
also this really important need to differentiate the population and the economy because mm. the old population share is having probably incredibly different economic mm. effects according to whether it's poor and old or rich and old or so on. So both Australia and China do have an aging population. Obviously, they have different immigration and you know different immigration habits of policies, different fertility policies, and so on. Nonetheless, um, just you know, understanding this dynamic of poor and old and rich and old, and really you know doing some deep research into those implications could help both Australia and China have different aging-related you know economic policies, which would yep. foster growth in both. Okay, so rather than just repeating a mantra, this old before uh, rich, actually digging into the into the details of it. Now, aside from you mentioned, um, you know, both countries have an aging population, but the structural issues in the countries are both different. Um, you also mentioned just before about how it's possible that a country like Australia or China could target policies. Um, once they understood those structural issues, um, to get a better outcome. So I guess that leads me to want to ask you, Lauren, what's your sense, it's a pretty tough question, I've got to admit, but what's your sense of China's ability to manage its ageing population challenge um, and enter the high-income group? Big question. It is indeed a million-dollar question mm. or probably even a trillion-dollar question. At least on, on the surface, some of the difference, some of the positives for China that we have identified in, in doing this kind of comparative research is, for example, that, and actually this partly is thanks to the getting old before rich notion and fear and how that affected and, and improved China's own policy making over the last three decades. You know, China invested incredibly heavily in the education of its younger population. Sector. Right, yep. So it's kind of old demographic boom population who are now retiring are quite on average poorly educated, they weren't able to, most of them even probably finish high school, let alone attend university. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a striking contrast to the younger population share of China. So the, the potential for productivity and innovation gains as a result of that really quite, you know, striking difference in educational availability Got between it. the yep. generations may help, may, may open up new frontiers of growth for China, which by comparison, are less available in an Australian context because the human capital gap between yep. the retiring generation and the you know, emerging workforce generation in Australia is, is much less, you know, much less big, much less different. So, you know, what, like Australia is kind of almost, you know, it's a dramatic word, but it's closer to hemorrhaging human capital over yes, the next right. 10 okay. years. So that's one positive which may drive China's... Um, China's growth into the high-income group, which is a benefit of getting old before rich. Yep. Otherwise, I mean, it is a... And, and on, on the kind of micro and technological level, I, I recently read an article that said Alibaba, for example, had hired some like a, a group of senior citizens who were advising on how to develop, you know, very easy-to-use apps and technology to facilitate population ageing, you know, sustainability and livelihood. Wow. Okay. And that included, for example, an option whereby they could allow their children, who indeed, as I've noted, have the higher incomes and a driving consumption, their children to pay for, you know, products and services on behalf of their parents. So there are these kind of micro, 
you know, institutional changes and market changes going on to to help deal with poverty and, mm, and mm. The distance. You know, a lot of Chinese children don't live near their parents, so this kind of technological advantage will at least help them support their parents from a distance. Wow, fascinating stuff. Lauren, we like to sometimes in our podcasts uh, look into a crystal ball. <laughs> and um, I'd like to finish off with a question that sort of explores the future, and in particular the, the future of the Australia-China economic relationship. Let me put a proposition to you. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. This is a proposition, and you tell me whether you think it's possible or not. Is it possible to imagine a situation for Australia and China where we enter something of a sweet spot? Um, where we benefit from an ageing Chinese population in terms of um, exporting healthcare services and um, you know, vitamins and high-quality food. And at the same time, we also keep selling more and more tourism and education uh, to China because its youth, while they're fewer in number, actually have a whole lot more resources than China's youth had decades ago. So in your perspective, how are all these opposing forces going to pan out? Is it possible that we could sell more of everything to China? Um, I guess it's possible that the, the trade trends can shift around the, the, the population trends. How that shifts volumes and net returns to both countries, I don't have a crystal ball for. Um, what I have seen, for example, this is at least on the academic level, two years ago I participated in a French, Chinese population aging conference at Peking University and a colleague from the University of Melbourne who heads the National Aging Research Institute, Bryony Dow, was also a speaker at the conference and she was explaining some of the micro policies that Australia has had for some time because we, we have the kind of high income population aging environment and so we have more developed policies for old age care and and Bryony was sharing some of those with the mostly Chinese audience. And I believe these kind of exchanges are creating opportunities for Australia's aged care sector mm. to share some of those lessons and, and invest in you know, the, the Chinese side. And I believe also Chinese investors are investing in, in the Australian aged care sector. I don't have the data and I haven't looked at it, but that is certainly one opportunity. And then an, another structural thing about this getting old before rich is that China's old largely haven't been able to enjoy traveling the world the way their children are at much younger ages. You know, they, they were quite poor for most of their lifetime. Right, yeah. Um, so they're a kind of an older, less sophisticated travel sector, which perhaps hasn't been targeted as well as it could have, a kind of a still the Chinese tourism market, you know, right, your first okay. or your second trip over abroad. Yes. You know, first ever trip abroad, these people don't speak English. Yes. So, you know, like a, a, a more nuanced and more sophisticated tourism strategy could could maybe, you know, give older Chinese a first trip abroad in a in a in a much more, you know, particular and, and managed way given that they haven't got such a travel experience and they maybe don't speak English. So these these would be ways to So, Lauren, it seems to me you've given some entrepreneurial listener out there a very good business tip, um, and I hope in the future, if they make a lot of money, that they refer back to this podcast. Ah, indeed. 
Okay, Laura, well, we might wrap it up there. Look, thanks very much. Thanks for explaining to us that China's um, demographic challenge is much more complicated than simply getting old before rich. Um, and, and the implications for Australia are, are challenging to grapple with. And it's certainly not simply a case that um, China growing old before rich means it will never get rich. It's, it's, it's not that simple at all. Thanks for joining Thank us, Laura. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, James. Our next episode will feature Professor Her Gung, Alfred Deakin Professor and Chair in International Relations at Deakin University. Professor Her will be discussing Chinese and Australian attitudes towards regionalism and Australia's strategy towards the rise of China. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all the episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There, you can also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.